Good evening, Redeemer. It's kind of different, isn't it? Cushion seats. We're, we're boxing up the drummer for some apparent reason. I don't, I'm not a musical guy. Apparently, there's a good reason for that. Is it just me, or are you all dressed more casually than normal? It just seems like it. Yeah, maybe? But I did notice that the, that the Holy Spirit travels pretty well, doesn't he? Yeah, good stuff. In the first decade of this century... Uh, there seemed to be kind of a heyday for modern atheist literature. I don't know if you were around or paying attention during that time. This was, you know, shortly after the 9-11 attacks. George W. Bush is president. He is a confessed follower of Christ, right? Religion was, was, was big in the news. Um, the so-called Christian right was kind of enjoying electoral success. And there were a number of books that came out in the three that, uh, uh, that I most normally reference, I, I call them the unholy triumvirate, uh, were Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and Sam Harris. Uh, Christopher Hitchens is a journalist. He wrote a book called God Is Not Great. Uh, Dr. Richard Dawkins probably had the most literary success. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. And on the Amazon site where uh, you can buy his book, I don't necessarily recommend it, Uh, uh, They call him the world's most prominent atheist. And in the description, it says that Dawkins eviscerates the major arguments for religion and demonstrates the supreme improbability of a supreme being. Now, I read the book, and I think that is a vast overstatement of what the book does. It all started, though, with Sam Harris. He wrote a book called The End of Faith, and then later followed it up with a book titled Letter to a Christian Nation. He wrote a letter to us. In his book, he said this is directed to a person who believes at minimum that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that only those who accept the divinity of Jesus Christ will experience salvation after death. So I took it personally because that's me. He he wrote it to me. So why do I bring this up? One of the things that I found common to each of these books uh, was a lack of basic logic and reason. Despite the fact that in each of these books, they contend in a continuous fashion that their arguments are based in logic and reason. In fact, Sam Harris offered this. He said in the opening of his book, nature offers no compelling evidence for an intelligent designer. To me, that just seems ridiculous, even if you're trying to be objective, that there's no evidence of an intelligent designer. But the thing that most perturbed me from these books was their handling of Scripture. Because, of course, in their books, they quoted a lot of scripture and they were quite, quite critical of it. And I remember reading Harris's book, Letter to a Christian Nation, and as I'm reading it, writing in the margin, out of cultural context, lack of understanding of fundamental biblical principles, and sometimes just completely not accurate. Now, I can kind of understand this, all right? And we're going to talk about this in a little detail in a minute. You and I, no human being, can understand scripture without the guiding hand of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at what Paul says about that. So, being self-proclaimed atheists, I can understand that they're going to have a problem understanding it as I do. And we all see the world differently. We all see the world through the paradigm of our experiences, and obviously their experiences are different than my experiences, so I understand that too. But what I, my objection was this is that as I read these books, they were completely unobjective in their approach to the text. They did not even do a good job of looking at the Bible as literature or as an historical work. They were just 
blatantly hostile to it, they had to almost go out of their way to come to the conclusions they did as they brought forth scripture and critiqued would be a mild word, more likely attacked. So today what we're going to see in our text is this. We're going to see Jesus in two more encounters, two final encounters with the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. And what we'll see is two distinct approaches to scripture and two very different responses to each of those approaches from Jesus. We will get a lesson in the importance of knowing and understanding scripture and how it impacts our ability to love God fully. So if you'll stand with me, please. We're in Mark chapter 12, and we will be starting at verse 18, reading through verse 34. Mark 12, do we have the page? Page 848 and 49. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be for The seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, uh, thankful for this place you have provided uh, that we may come and worship uh, and sit under your word. Thankful for our brothers who have opened their doors, our brothers and sisters who have uh, just so welcomed us. Um, grateful for the presence of your spirit. Father, we ask that your spirit would just guide our hearts that lead us through uh, such a rich passage that you would show us what you would have us uh, to learn from you today. Uh, We just give you all the honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated on the cushy seats. 
So, two encounters. In each encounter, an issue based in Scripture is raised. The first, the question of the resurrection is challenged. And then the second, what is the greatest commandment? In each encounter, Jesus answers with Scripture. But the responses and interactions are quite different. Did you catch that? To the Sadducees, Jesus says, you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. In fact, he frames that and at the end says, you are quite wrong. To the scribe, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he says, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. Two vastly different responses. Why the difference? Let's look at the first one. The first question, uh, convoluted and complicated, is based on Deuteronomy 25, 5-6, where Moses writes, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. There's a purpose to this law. The purpose of this law was, one, to protect the widow, because a widow in this culture, in this time, this day and age, was, was helpless. Secondly, to preserve the family line of the deceased, right? The son takes the brother's name. And third, to, to, to pass on property. But what have these Sadducees done with this fairly straightforward scripture? Well, brother marries dies, wife marries another brother, dies, marries another brother, and they go to seven, which is way over the top. The example would have worked fine with two, right? Marry one brother, he dies, marry the other brother, he dies. She's got two husbands in heaven, but they want to they really, really go over the top with this. So what's going on? Jesus has come to Jerusalem. He's disrupted the proceedings at the temple. The Jewish leadership is upset This young rabbi who has been stirring things up up in Galilee was bad enough, but now he's come to Jerusalem. And the leadership has already, as we have seen in recent weeks, made two attempts to discredit him by questioning about his authority, where did you get it, and about trying to trap him in this question about taxes. They know that Jesus teaches there's a resurrection, a life after this one. If they can demonstrate that such a teaching is absurd... Jesus' authority will be weakened and undermined, and maybe they can get rid of this problem. So how does this example do that? If the law is obeyed exactly as it's laid out in Moses, and if, if, this is a huge if, resurrected life is the same as pre-resurrected life, if it's the same as we experience now, then in the resurrected life, we have an untenable situation, a woman with seven husbands. This is how we get Jesus. We give him a situation that can't possibly work if there is a resurrection. So what's Jesus' response? He says to them, is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. The Sadducees are wrong, and they are wrong on two counts. They don't know the scriptures, and they don't know the power of God. And Jesus provides two examples to demonstrate how the Sadducees misjudge the power of God. For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels. So the Sadducees have made a critical error in their assumptions when they set up this question designed to trap Jesus. Their understanding of the resurrection is incorrect. They presumed the resurrection life was basically the same as what we experience now. They limited God's power. 
Well, if God raises from the dead, he must only be able to raise us as we are now. No, says Jesus. He's God. He created everything. He can do anything he wants. Resurrected life will not be like this life. And Jesus provides two examples to demonstrate the point. We won't be married. I hope that's probably a source of some consternation for some of us. Your spouse will be there. You'll still love each other. But you won't be married. And in some respects, we will be like angels. Furthermore, and more directly to the question of resurrection, Jesus says to the Sadducees, you do not know the scriptures. He says this, and as for the dead being raised, you have, not, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is based on Exodus 3, 6, where Moses is encountering the burning bush. But notice that God does not say, I was the God of Abraham and was the God of Isaac, and was the God of Jacob. I am the God. Present tense. These men are alive. God is not the God of that which is deceased. He's not the God of dust. These men, especially Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, enjoyed a special covenant relationship with God, an everlasting relationship that does not end with their earthly deaths. The, deaths. the Sadducees failed to appreciate this essential link between God's covenant faithfulness and his resurrection. So, so what do we surmise? What do we want to get from this, from this passage about Scripture, about approach to Scripture, about attitude towards Scripture? What do we see the Sadducees doing? First of all, they're arrogant in their understanding. This is how it is in their minds. Their undoing was that their understanding was faulty. They were quite wrong, says Jesus. Rather than desiring to know God through his word, which is why God has revealed himself to us in his word, they tried to use God's word as a bludgeon to attack Jesus. They did not ask the question with the intention of being enlightened. Gee, how does this work, Jesus? to learn more about God and his plan for us, they were attempting to use scripture to trap him. And it appears that their knowledge of scripture had not impacted their lives in any meaningful way. In commentary after commentary, as I read about Sadducees and who they were, there was one very interesting common thread through all of it. Nobody liked these guys. And they didn't even like each other. They had no sanctification about them. They were always described as unfriendly and aloof. So that's the Sadducees. Park that just for a minute. The attitude, their approach, how they saw Scripture, what they hoped to glean from Scripture. Describe as this. One of the, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, now look at this encounter. The question raised by the scribe has a clearly distinctive tone from what we saw with the Sadducees. Mark describes this scribe as seeing that Jesus had answered them well. He seems impressed 
with Jesus' words to the Sadducees. He seems to like him. He seems to agree with them. Surely he will affirm Jesus' answer as we saw when we read the text. And Jesus will characterize the scribe as wise. This is obviously a friendly exchange, one characterized by, by mutual respect and a desire to seek out the truth of God's word. So here is what we want to do this evening. We want to examine these two attitudes and approaches to Scripture and learn from what the scribe shows us versus what the Sadducees. And the first lesson is this. The scribe approaches Scripture with openness and humility. Unlike the carefully crafted, convoluted, arrogant question of the Sadducees designed to set a trap, This scribe is asking a question commonly discussed amongst the religious leaders in Jerusalem. This was not an out-of-left-field, let's-set-up-some-sort-of-bizarre-circumstance. This was a legitimate, scholarly, theological question. The Pharisee teacher, Halil, was once asked by a Gentile, teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. He was asking basically the same question, tell me, what does the Torah tell you? And Halil answered, what you yourself hate, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. It's kind of the negative version of the golden rule, right? Instead of doing unto others, don't do to others what you don't want to have done to yourself. The question, what is the most important commandment that the scribe asked of Jesus is the kind of question Jesus had addressed previously. In the Sermon of the Mount, he talked about the greater and lesser commandments. Here's the point. The scribe is making a sincere inquiry. He's seeking an honest answer. He is teachable. He is extending to Jesus the respect that is appropriate. He is not trying to trap. He saw that Jesus answered well in his exchange with the Sadducees. And Jesus acknowledged the wisdom of the scribe in the way that the scribe had received the word. So contrast that with the Sadducees. They held to their flawed interpretation with clenched fists. Their question reeked of arrogance and defiance. And at the end of verse 34, Mark says this, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I think this scribe had further conversations. But these guys who had been set in the traps, by what authority do we pay our taxes? this wild, bizarre example of seven uh, brothers and marrying the same wife. So first, we should approach Scripture with open minds and open hearts. Now, I want you to think about it. In our flesh, and I'm talking about me, we are susceptible to bringing our own biases and our own perspectives and our own false understandings of God to the Scriptures. I know I've done it. Before we go on, though, I want to lay an important foundation about how we interact with Scripture. And I I mentioned this at the beginning. Scripture is clear that any knowledge we have of God is obtained by the action of the Holy Spirit. I want to quote extensively 1 Corinthians 2, where Paul writes this. Yet among the mature... We do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. 
For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. When we come to Christ, when we acknowledge our sinful state and our desperate need for a savior, and we accept the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is present here now, the third person of the Trinity comes and dwells in us. And God's Spirit bridges this chasm between the deep things of God and our hearts, graciously enabling human beings, finite as we are, to understand the message of the cross, which would otherwise be incomprehensible. It is God's Spirit which enables us to even begin to set aside our biases, opinions, and agenda when we approach his word, to be open and humble in receiving God's revelation to us. But as with our conversion and with our ongoing transformation, we participate. We accede to the process. God initiates it, no question. He comes for us. It is only by God's grace that we come to him, that we comprehend his word, and that we are sanctified. But we're involved, we participate, we are active, and so our task is to prayerfully, by the Spirit, seek openness and humility as we approach his word. So as with the Sadducees, Jesus answers the question with Scripture. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6. In first century Jerusalem, this may be the best known verse in all of Jewish scriptures. It's referred to as the Shema. The word Shema means to hear based on those first three words, hear, O Israel. The Shema was repeated twice a day by pious Jews. It's a prayer of confession of faith, morning and evening. Everybody listening to Jesus when he said, Hear, O Israel, knew what he was talking about. It was the creed of Israel. And the the various elements, heart, soul, might, is what Deuteronomy says. Jesus says heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of that is that it encompasses the entirety of a human being. The point is this. All that we are, heart, soul, mind, and strength is to be devoted to loving God. We are to love God with all of our energy and our being. We are to love God with the fullness of our understanding. And why are we to love God in this committed, nothing withheld fashion? It's because what he has done for us, pretty good reason, created us, reached out to us, saved us. Do we love him because of his attributes? Because he's wise and powerful and just and loving and holy? Perhaps. But ultimately, 
We are to love the Lord our God for he himself. He is lovely. He is wonderful. He is worthy. He's a person. He's not a cosmic force. Truly unique. No other being like him. The whole man is the object of God's covenant love. He came for us wholly. And the whole man is therefore to be claimed by God for himself. So the second lesson today is this. As we approach scripture, we need to approach it with a desire to know God. Jesus just said, the greatest commandment is that we love God with all of our being. How are we to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, if we do not know the Lord our God? with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Knowing God is the most important thing in life. More important than children. More important than spouse. More important than golf. More important than rock climbing. Knowing God. But, as we learn in Scripture... In our natural state, we're not inclined to do this. We are not inclined to either seek, to know, or to love God. Romans 3, Paul writes, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one. What are we to do? It is only by God's grace and his movement in our hearts that we have the slightest spark of seeking him, of desiring to know him. Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Without this work of God in our hearts, we remain rebellious, uninterested in the things of God, focused on self, and to quote Romans, worthless. But he has drawn us those of us in the room who are believers. He has created belief in our hearts so that we may desire knowledge of him. In Ephesians, Paul says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our very faith is the creation of God. It is not our own doing. God has done a work in us through faith alone, a faith in the atoning work of Christ's death and resurrection, a faith that is itself a gift from God, we can desire to know God and love God. And he desires that we do just that. That's what Jesus just said. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God is a person. He has a mind. He has a will. He has emotions. He is relational and personal. And God has revealed himself in his written word and provided his spirit so that we can know him. It is in pursuing knowledge of God in his word that our love for him grows. So as we approach scripture, we need to approach it with openness and humility. We need to approach it desiring to know God. Jesus goes on, the second part of his answer, also from scripture, Leviticus 19. The second is this, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, This command and its wording are based on our natural inclination to care for ourselves. It addresses us as we are. 
Sinners who love ourselves. If there is a question on who is our neighbor in this, Jesus has already addressed that in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Your neighbor includes even your most hated enemy. For Jesus, the whole of the law is summarized in these two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. Both elements, one from Deuteronomy and one from Leviticus, would have been very familiar to these Jewish listeners. But he may be the first rabbi who put them together. They include all of the commandments. Love God, love your fellow man. They indicate that love for God and love for man cannot be separated. The first, love God, is fundamental to the second. Only through adherence to the first, only by loving God, can we ever hope to love our fellow man. More than that, a wholehearted love for God necessitates an expression of selfless concern for others. So that, this is our third approach, attitude towards Scripture. We need to approach Scripture anticipating transformation. I'm going to repeat what I said a second ago. A wholehearted love for God necessitates an expression of selfless concern for others. If we love God, we will love our fellow man. But as we've seen in our natural state, we do not seek God, we do not love God, and we do not love our fellow man. It is only, again, by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit that we can become people who love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Paul writes in the second letter to the Corinthians, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Just as we are unable to comprehend the message of the cross without the work of the Holy Spirit, just as we are unable to come to God, to seek God, to love God, without the work of the Holy Spirit, we are also unable to be transformed to do, to love our neighbor. So as we take in God's word, as we become more and more aware of who he is and who we are in relation to him, we are transformed into his likeness by the Holy Spirit so that we can love others as ourselves. So as we approach scripture, we do it with openness and humility. We approach scripture desiring to know God so that we can love more. We approach scripture anticipating that it will transform us conversation with the scribe continues. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This expression, you are right, teacher, it is more than just a simple affirmation. Better way to translate it from the Greek would be, what a beautiful answer. The scribe is impressed and inspired by the Lord's answer to his question, so much so that he repeats it back. But there's more to it than that. The scribe says to love God and to love one's neighbor is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifice. Whoa. This is, this is a bit of a surprise. Our fourth point, we should approach Scripture thirsting for deep understanding. 
What, what has this scribe, scribe just said? This scribe is closely tied to the system of sacrifice in the temple for, for, in first century Judea. But he says that there's something that's much more than these whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. It seems like this scribe has been thinking deeply about eternal things. This scribe is giving God's word priority over the traditions of which he is such an important part. This scribe did not let his natural allegiance keep him from acknowledging the truth. He was willing to think deeply. He was open to the message of God. He was open to the fact that it's not about sacrifices and and ritual. It's about love. Love for God, love for neighbor. This guy gets it. Love is more important than ritual. So I ask us, are we thirsting for a deep understanding of God through his word. Peter writes in his first letter, you're going to love this metaphor, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up until salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. There's a metaphor Redeemer can relate to right now. It's newborn infants. The pure spiritual milk Peter is talking about is God's word. There's a condition at the end. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Those of us who believe, those of us who have accepted the free gift of salvation in Christ, we have tasted that the Lord is good. And because of what Christ has done and continues to do in our lives, we long for God's word the way a newborn infant longs for milk. And we who believe in the 21st century have so much available to us as we seek to know God, to love him more. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, just like our first century brethren, but we have access to God's word almost anywhere we are. Just pull my phone out of my pocket. We have the teaching of great biblical scholars to help us understand. We have a community of believers with whom we can discuss and share our understanding and we can encourage and correct. What a sad condemnation are Jesus' words to the Sadducees. Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Let that not be said of us. Let us not grieve the Holy Spirit by not thirsting for God's word. So Jesus identifies the most important commandment is to love. Love God, love our neighbor. And the most fundamental thing we can do as human beings is to love God. And the only way to do that is to know him as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. The Sadducees, in their approach to the scriptures, were arrogant in their interpretation, swelled with theological notions, shallow in their understanding and unchanged by what they knew. But our scribe, now, and don't discount the work of the Holy Spirit here. Some of you, some of you theologians are thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus hasn't died yet. He hasn't been resurrected. The Holy Spirit has not come to dwell in believers. The Holy Spirit was not on the sidelines in the Old Testament. Clearly active. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless he's drawn. There were a lot of people coming to Jesus while he was doing his ministry. The Holy Spirit is definitely at work. But 
in working with the Holy Spirit, we need to approach Scripture with openness and humility, ready to hear it speak into our lives. We need to approach Scripture with a desire to know God so that we can love Him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. We need to approach Scripture anticipating that it will change us and transform us and sanctify us so that we can love others as ourselves. And finally, we need to approach Scripture thirsty, like a newborn baby, for a deeper understanding of God through his word. All of this with the ultimate purpose of loving God fully and loving others as ourselves. As Jesus is teaching and having this encounter, he is just hours from the cross. The days are short. Soon he will be in the upper room with his disciples, sharing that final meal, declaring the new covenant in his blood. And we're about to celebrate that meal here this morning. Uh, It's going to look different. Two stations up front, do I have that right? And then one in the back. Come down the middle aisles and then return by the side aisles. I think everything is the same. We break off the bread, dip it in the cup, juice and wine. Wine is marked with twine. Um, If you have questions, if you want to pray, where are we going to be? We're going to be out there. Look for people who look like they have the Holy Spirit out that way. (laughs) We'll pray and chat and stuff. Let's pray now. Father God, uh, so thankful for your word, uh, how it draws us, how it teaches us. Father, give us those, those open hearts. Let us not cling uh, to faulty notions of who you are. Um, give us clarity in our study of you um, in your word, Father. Give us a desire to draw closer to you, to know you, to know you intimately, to know you as you are, as a person, uh, as a being who has a mind and emotions and loves us and cares for us. Um, Father, help us to dig into your word and that it might transform us by your spirit, that, that we may become more and more like you every day. Give us that thirst for your word, Father. We're grateful for it. We're thankful for it. We're thankful for your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.